following podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins, then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only this, in this life, if only for this life, excuse me, we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of, these, of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So that's our statement. That's what we're getting so far. All right. So we're going to look at some other, uh, other facts as they're being thrown in here. So first one is this. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then the foundation for the Christian faith would forever be destroyed. Former atheist and skeptic Josh McDowell spent more than 700 hours researching evidence for the resurrection. He explains, I have come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is either one of the most heartless hoaxes ever imposed upon the minds of men, or it is the most fantastic fact of history. Persuaded by the evidence, Josh's research led him to the conviction that Jesus' resurrection is the most fantastic fact of history. We've got some are saying yes, some are saying no. So we still got to press on in our investigation here. Another ardent skeptic English journalist, Frank Morrison, believed Jesus' resurrection was mythical and began research for a book proving his case. However, as he examined the evidence, Morrison changed his mind, as well as the theme of his book. What was it that changed Morrison's mind? Well, uh, he discovered that what Jesus' followers claim, they had eyewitnesses. Sorry, it's really hard for me to talk. Of his death and resurrection. So what he's saying, if you didn't understand those word salad that just came out of my mouth, <clears throat> was he based his belief in the resurrection on eyewitnesses. I don't know if you guys have watched God's Not Dead 3, I think it is, where there was an actual real-life uh, investigator who actually examined um, the evidence for the resurrection and for Christ, and uh, he was actually part of the movie, and he went through, and what was convincing to him was the fact that all of these eyewitnesses saw him. And, there's, and we're going to get into the significance of that here in a second. First, Jesus predicts his own death and resurrection. 700 years before Christ, the prophet Isaiah had written about a future Messiah who would suffer and die for our sins, but later be restored to life. Echoing the prophecy in Isaiah, Jesus claimed that he was the Messiah who would be betrayed, arrested, condemned, and killed, but then three days later would come back to life. Mark 10.33 says... We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Everything Jesus taught and claimed depended on his resurrection from the dead. If Jesus didn't rise as he had promised, his message of forgiveness, hope for eternal life would be meaningless. 
He was putting his words to the ultimate test of truth. Bible scholar Wilbur Smith explains, when he said he would rise again from the dead the third day after he was crucified, he said something that only a fool would dare say if he expected the devotion of his disciples, unless he was sure he was going to rise. Exactly as Jesus predicted, eyewitnesses report uh, he was betrayed by one of his disciples, Judas. Then in a mock trial under the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, he was condemned and crucified on a wooden cross. Jesus suffered on the cross for approximately six hours. Then at three o'clock in the afternoon, or I would say 1500, Jesus cried out, it is finished and died. Suddenly the sky went dark and the earthquake shook the land. What I want to show now is some video evidence. If there were body-worn cameras, I think everybody probably knows what body-worn cameras are now. Um, so this is kind of our look into uh, some eyewitness uh, accounts through the visual aid of a body-worn camera. So that brings us to where we are at in our investigation. I think we've shown, switching to the prosecution side of things, we've shown that Jesus was alive. He was crucified. Obviously, we weren't going to go into the graphicness of the uh, beating that he took prior to, because that would have just been unnecessary. I think we all, probably most of all of us have seen this movie. It is very, very difficult to watch, but it just hits you, it hits you hard to see what he went through. So here we are now. We've got him. He was crucified. They brought him down. So now we're going to continue on a little bit more here. Pilate wanted to verify that Jesus was dead before allowing his crucified body to be buried. So a Roman guard thrust the spear into Jesus' side. The mixture of blood and water flowed out. According to eyewitnesses, it was a clear indication that Jesus was dead. Once his death was certified, Jesus' body was taken to the tomb, uh, tightly wrapped in linen and buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Roman guards then sealed the tomb with a large stone and were under strict orders to watch the tomb 24-7. <laughs> Jesus' disciples were so utterly devastated by his death on the cross that they fled for their lives, fearing they too would be captured and killed. But something happened. An unlikely resource from... Uh, an article that came from the New York Times. Shortly after Jesus was executed, his followers were suddenly galvanized from a baffled and cowering group into people whose message about a living Jesus and a coming kingdom, preached at the risk of their own lives, eventually changed an empire. Something happened, but what exactly happened? Going back to Morrison's evidence, he says he wanted to know exactly, or actually what happened that changes Jesus' followers and started a movement that made such a profound impact on the world today. He realized that there were five possible explanations for this. Jesus didn't really die on the cross. His body was stolen. His disciples were hallucinating. The account was legendary or made up. Or it really happened. Morrison began examining facts patiently and impartially to see where they would lead him. Was Jesus dead? We can all agree by the, watching the video that he was. Um, Morrison first wanted verification that Jesus was really dead when placed in the tomb. He learned that Jesus' death was considered factually for nearly 1,800 years. And about 200 years ago, uh, skeptics postulated that Jesus didn't die on the cross, but merely lost consciousness. And it was revived by the cool, damp air of the tomb. This became known as the swoon theory. Morrison wondered if Jesus had survived the cross. 
he researched both Jewish and Roman contemporary history and discovered the following facts supporting Jesus' death. All of the accounts affirm that he died. Pilate verified he died. During the lifetime of the eyewitnesses, no one disputes his death. Secular and contemporary historians Lucian Josephus and Tacticus cite his death as factual. Morrison became convinced that Jesus was truly dead, and in fact, almost universally accepted as true by trusted scholars and historians. Morrison concluded that Jesus Christ died on the cross in the full physical sense of the term. Seems to me to be one of the certainties of history, according to Morrison. So the next question that was dealt with was the body stolen. He wondered if the disciples faked the resurrection story, uh, claiming he was alive. That might be plausible if the tomb was in an obscure area when no one would see him or see the tomb. However, the tomb belonged to a well-known member of the Sanhedrin. We all know who Joseph of Arimathea is. Since Joseph's tomb was, was at a well-known location and easily identifiable, any thoughts of Jesus' being lost in a graveyard would need to be dismissed. Not only was the location well-known, but the Romans had assigned guards to watch the tomb 24 hours a day. This was a trained guard unit comprised of four to 16 soldiers. Josh McDowell notes the Roman guard unit was committed to discipline and they feared failure in any way because if they failed, you know what was going to happen to them. A pirate would have them killed. It would have been impossible for anyone to have slipped by the guards unnoticed and then moved the stone. Yet the stone was rolled away, making it possible for eyewitnesses to enter the tomb. And when they did, the body of Jesus was missing. If Jesus' body was anywhere to be found, his enemies would have quickly exposed the resurrection as a fraud. Tom Anderson, former president of the California Trial Lawyers Association, summarizes the strength of this argument. Quote, with an event so well publicized, don't you think that it is reasonable that one historian, one eyewitness, one antagonist would record for all time that he had seen Christ's body? The silence of history is deafening when it comes to the testimony against the resurrection. So with no body of evidence and with no tomb, with a known tomb, excuse me, clearly empty, Morrison accepted that Jesus' body was not stolen. Were the disciples hallucinating? So he asked, he, he researched that question. He wondered if they uh, had been so emotionally distraught that they were hallucinating and imagining the resurrection. Psychologist Gary Collins, former president of the American Association of Christian Counselors, explains that hallucinations are individual occurrences. By their very nature, only one person can see a given hallucination at any time. They certainly aren't something which can be seen by a group of people. We would all have to, I don't know, I don't even, I can't even imagine what we'd have to be taken in order for all of us to see the same things uh, um, that weren't really here. It's a different topic for a different day. <laughs> Hallucination is not even a remote possibility according to psychologist Thomas Thornburn. It is absolutely inconceivable that 500 persons of average soundness of mind should experience all kinds of sensuous impressions, visual, auditory, tactile, and all these experiences should rest entirely upon hallucination. So he said, no way, that's not gonna happen. The hallucination theory then appears to be another dead end. So he goes to the next one. Is this a legend? Did somebody make this stuff up? Some unconvinced skeptics attribute the resurrection story to the legend that, became, uh, that began with one or more persons lying or thinking they, they saw Jesus resurrected. 
Over time, the legend would have grown and embellished as it was passed on. But the three, there are three major problems with that theory. Legends simply don't develop while multiple eyewitnesses are alive to refute them. One historian of ancient Roman Greece, A.N. Sherwin White, argued that the resurrection news spread too soon and too quickly for it to have been a legend. Even skeptical scholars admit that Christian hymns and creeds were recited in early churches within two to three years of Jesus' crucifixion. Legends developed by oral tradition and are not supported with contemporary historical documents. Yet the Gospels were written within three decades of the resurrection. The legend theory doesn't adequately explain either the empty tomb or the fervent conviction of the apostles that Jesus was alive. Morrison originally Morrison's original assumption that the resurrection account was mythical or legendary didn't coincide with the facts. So it leaves us with the final question of, did it really happen? Having eliminated the main arguments against Jesus' resurrection due to their inconsistency with the facts, Morrison began asking himself, did it really happen? Instead of looking for evidence against his resurrection, he wondered how strong the case was for its actual occurrence. Several factors stood out. One of them is women first. Each eyewitness account reports that Jesus suddenly appeared bodily to his followers, the women first. Morrison wondered why conspirators would make, would make women central to the plot. In the first century, excuse me, women had virtually no rights, personhood, or status. Morrison reasoned that conspirators would have portrayed men, not women, as the first to see Jesus alive. And yet we read those women touched him, spoke with him, and were first to find the empty tomb. Multiple eyewitnesses. The disciples claimed they saw Jesus on one or more, uh, or up to ten, uh, separate, 10 separate occasions. Then he showed them his hands and his feet and told them to touch him. He ate with them and later on, on one occasion, appeared to alive to more than 500 followers. In Caesarea, Peter told a crowd that he had, and the other uh, disciples were so convinced Jesus was alive. He said, we apostles are witnesses of all he did throughout Israel and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by crucifying him, but God raised him to life three days later. We were those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Morrison realized that early sightings of a risen Jesus by so many of his followers would have been virtually impossible to fake. When we interview witnesses in cases, there's multiple witnesses, the last thing we want to hear is the same story from each person. And that's where he's drawing his conclusion from when, he inter when you talk about witnesses to a case, and in particular this case. If I'm getting the same exact story from this three or four different people, we know that there's probably a false story, so it's made up. And that was one of the things that convinced that gentleman that I mentioned in the movie was on all the, any reference when you look at the Gospels, they were all different accounts. And it's not because they were, they were trying to hide something or it's not because it was incorrect. It's because everyone sees things differently. I'm going to see things differently than you do. And so that was the reason for the difference in the Gospels. Consistent to the end. As Morrison continued his investigation, he began to examine the motives of Jesus' followers. He reasoned that something extraordinary must have happened because the followers of Jesus ceased mourning, ceased hiding, and began fearlessly proclaiming that they had seen Jesus alive. As if the eyewitness reports were not enough to challenge Morris's skepticism, he was also baffled by the disciples' behavior. These 11 former cowards were suddenly willing to suffer humiliation, 
torture, and even death. All but one of Jesus' disciples were slain as martyrs. If they had taken the body, would they have sacrificed so much for a lie? Something happened that changed everything for these men and women. It was this significant fact that persuaded Morrison the resurrection must have really happened. Whoever comes to this problem has sooner or later to confront a fact that cannot be explained away. The fact is that a profound conviction came to the little group of people, a change that attests to the fact that Jesus had risen from the grave. I'm going to play the last bit of clip of this movie, and who has seen The Passion of the Christ? When I saw it in the theaters, like probably most of you guys did, it was definitely a difficult movie to watch and go through the whole thing and see everything that happened. When the movie closed, the very closing of the ending of the movie, I wanted to get up and shout. I, I would have been the only one to do that. And I understand that why, but I want to just play this last clip to kind of put the final stamp on my case. Okay? So as I conclude my closing argument, by all rights, if there was no resurrection, Christianity should have died out at the cross when the disciples fled for their lives. But the apostles went on to establish a growing Christian movement. Whatever one believes about the validity of Jesus' resurrection, clearly something happened. After his death, it has made a lasting impact on our world. When world historian H.G. Wells was asked, who has left the greatest legacy on history? The non-Christian scholar replied, by this test, Jesus stands first. So what is that legacy? In the book that he finally ended up completing, Morrison's Who Moved the Stone, documents the evidence that led to the belief in the resurrection. Morrison is not alone. Numerous other skeptics who examined the evidence for Jesus' resurrection also became convinced and accepted as the most astounding fact in all human history. Oxford professor, former skeptic C.S. Lewis, who had once doubted Jesus' very existence, was also persuaded by the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. He writes, something perfectly new in history of the universe had happened. Christ had defeated death. The door, which had always been locked, had for the very first time been forced open. So what does Jesus' resurrection mean to you and me? Prior to his crucifixion, Jesus explained why his resurrection was so important to us. He told one of his followers, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, his words wouldn't have meaning to our lives today. But if his resurrection really happened, then Jesus is the only one who can answer life's most important questions. Who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going after I die? The desire for freedom kept C.S. Lewis from God for most of his college years after his quest for the truth led him to God. Lewis explains how acceptance of Christ involves more than just intellectual agreement with the facts. He writes, quote, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Laying down your arms, surrendering, saying you are sorry, realizing that you've been on the wrong track, and getting ready to start life over again is what Christians call repentance. Repentance is a word that means a dramatic turnaround in our thinking. That's what happened to Nixon's former hatchet man. 
After Watergate ex was exposed, Chuck Colson began thinking about life differently. Sensing his own lack of purpose, he began reading Lewis's Mere Christianity book. Given to him by a friend, trained as a lawyer, Colson took out a yellow legal pad and began writing down Lewis's arguments. Colson recalled, I knew the time had come for me. Was I to accept without reservation Jesus Christ as Lord of my life? It was like a gate before me. There was no way to walk around it. I would step through it or I would remain outside. And maybe, a maybe or I need more time was kidding myself. After an inner struggle, this former aide to the President of the United States finally realized that Jesus Christ was deserving of his full allegiance. He writes, and so early Friday morning, while I sat alone staring at the sea I love, words I had not been certain I could understand or say fell naturally from my lips. Lord Jesus, I believe you. I accept you. Please come into my life. I commit to you. As I conclude, some of us may be at a crossroads in our lives, and that happens. But all we got to do is just correct the path. The crossroads of the cross is not only calling you to believe in the resurrection, but to begin living in the power of the resurrection. So, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I have presented my case. What is your findings? Was Jesus resurrected? Yes. All right. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up my heart.